Welcome to Critical Line Item. My name is Tom Bradley. Thank you for joining me. Uh, would you, as listeners to Critical Line Item, would be aware uh, we're doing a regular weekly tax chat with Lisa Gregg, a tax expert and a tax trainer. Uh, Lisa is with me today to talk through some of the issues that have crossed her desk over the past week or so and a couple of the questions that have become of interest over the past little while. Lisa, thanks for joining me again. Thank you very much, Tom. Lovely being here again. Okay. Um, Last Friday, the ATO took the trash out in the evening again, which it has done over the past month or so, in relation to JobKeeper. What did it tell you? Um, I was actually quite relieved, Tom, that we didn't have any great um, instructional changes that came out from the ATL or Treasury or anything like that. So it meant that us accountants and bookkeepers and tax agents, etc., um, didn't have to spend the whole weekend deciphering what we needed to do. So um, what I would say was the greatest achievement of JobKeeper on Friday was the money started flowing. The reimbursements started coming through, which was quite nice. Um, still a little bit problematic. Um, some have or haven't got it. And the biggest challenge for us accountants as well is we can't see it come in. We're relying on our clients, the employers, actually giving us a text message or a quick phone call or an email saying, it's hit the account. Thanks very much. Looks like you've done it right. So that's what we're waiting on here. But there's a few that have uh, been held up for some reason or another. Have you got any clarity on the reason why? No, no. I've co- talked to one colleague where it's been outright rejected and we don't know why. I'm waiting to hear about that. I've had a couple where it's been, um, it's gone through for checking. Now, I'll, the ATO couldn't tell me what that checking was. It, um, not validity of bank account, tax file number, um, eligibility of employees, not sure. But um, the rule is for anyone out there listening that needs a bit of guidance is if your client or you as an employer haven't received the money, I'd be getting on the phone to the ATO and saying I haven't received it and escalating it. And their delivery metric is 10 business days to fix that up to be escalated. So that's basically two weeks. Now, the problem a lot of my clients have got with that, if it does take two weeks, then they are then bankrolling pretty much four fortnights. So you know, originally they were sort of anticipating through working out their cash flow projections two fortnights and I've encouraged them to do three just in case. Um, but now it looks like they might need to be bankrolling four fortnights. So we'll wait and see. One good thing about it is I think once the validation checks have been done, hopefully when we do our next step three, as we're calling it, uh, at the beginning of next month, um, surely they don't have to go through the validation checks again. Once it's done once, it should be ticked off because it it's the same employer and it should be the same employees receiving the various JobKeeper fortnights. Have there been any other administrative issues that have cropped up, Lisa, during the past week or has it just been the, a hold-up because some clients have been looked at twice by the ATO? Yeah, I think that's pretty much it, Tom. Um, There was rumours afoot, and I think it came through in um, one of the maybe Senate estimates discussions or a a media release where there was some um, throwaway line maybe by someone saying that um, JobKeeper might be finishing early, but it sounds like now that the Prime Minister has said that, um, no, we're there for the whole um, 
six months, so up until September, which is good because it has been a big investment of time and learning for all of us practitioners as well as um, the employers relying on this JobKeeper now for the next six months to manage their cash flow because where they see it being extremely beneficial is when they can start opening again of which we know that's happening um, in the other states, if I can call it that, because we're down in, in Victoria. Some of the other states are starting to open up a little bit more, but hopefully by next month across Australia-wide, um, there'll be some revenue starting and the economy starting to pick up again, which means JobKeeper will give the employers a little bit of free labour, if we look at it that way, to try and start grabbing back and clawing, clawing back or snapping back, depending on what terminology we're using, um, on uh, what they've lost over the past couple of months. Did you get anybody calling you up and asking whether they needed to redo their projections? Because the speculation last week would have had some people nervous. Yeah, it has, but I think that... um, the second commissioner, Jeremy Hershorn, has basically um, given a lot of um, reassurance that um, they'll give the employees the benefit of the doubt. So if you've made your predictions in good faith and then all of a sudden you've had a big, fantastic order come in or a new client come in or something like that, that, that is, has thrown your turnover out, um, as long as your projections are solid and has got some uh, science and, and, and uh, rationale behind it, Uh, the ATL will be happy to look at that. So I think the take-home message again is substantiation and paperwork. Make sure you've got a lot of things like that to to support where you're at going forward. Now, with JobKeeper, there's been a need for accountants to focus intensely on where the client sits Mm -hmm. and how uh, and what the client needs to do to submit and lodged the correct documentation. It's been a busy period, and I'm aware that the professional bodies have lobbied for an extension of deadlines. It would appear from what I hear, you may have heard the same thing, that the ATO is somewhat reluctant to extend the deadlines uh, any further. Um, what, are you, what, what have you heard of late? Yeah, exactly, Tom. I think that um, from talking to all the all the bod- uh, the accounting bodies, um, it was a really tough sell to try and move uh, the official um, lodgement deadlines anywhere. Uh, where we've got to is tomorrow is a big lodgement day for the for the small end of town. The fifteenth of May is a huge lodgement day, um, and what we've found is for the um, companies. Uh, we've moved to the 5th of June being the new lodgement date instead of tomorrow. And for SMSFs, it's moved to the 30 June, uh, which is very helpful and beneficial because we've been, because us practitioners have been spending, you know, basically the past four weeks doing JobKeeper and getting things um, going that way. However, um, pretty much the uh, there's no blanket deferral for individuals that are due tomorrow or um, trusts that are due tomorrow as well. So what do we need to do? We need to fill in a deferral lodgement, an agent deferral lodgement, with the, with the reason um, why we would like a 28-day extension. And that's what I've done for all my clients that haven't lodged yet, that I didn't get my act together early enough or they didn't provide their paperwork early enough in the year. So if anything was due to be um, provided to me through this JobKeeper uh, period, 
of hard work that we've been doing. Um, I've basically put in a deferral lodgement and I must say that my experience has been that the ATO have granted those within a 24-hour period. Um, but I'm just waiting for the portal to update to make sure that it's right. But I've got through all of mine for an additional 28 days uh, and that's what we've got to do. But um, I can imagine for large practices, you'd be having one admin person doing that pretty much full time to extend the period. Um, the little trick with those, though, as we've been talking about, is if you've got any Div 7A exposure, so basically deemed dividends or or uh, individuals or trusts pulling money out, um, not through payroll, um, those, those to fix those Div 7A requirements are still required as of tomorrow when the return was due to be lodged. You don't have until the 5th, the 5th of June to do it. Yeah. Okay, so that's uh, that covers that issue off. Um, and we had, obviously, the, in terms of the tax year coming, that is mm -hmm. 19 to 20, mm -hmm. uh, some people are just wrapping up their lodgements for 2018-19. What are some of the things people need to do to make life easier for themselves when they're planning for the next lodgement they have to make? Yeah, well, let's let's just um, focus down the scope of that question to um, individuals. I've already uh, received my first request for a new client. Actually, we always love getting new clients. Um, new client saying, "Can we meet early July, Lisa, to get my tax return done?" Because uh, that's when the uh, new tranche is, and that's also um, why the ATR are re reluctant to push um, the due dates for the 2019 year any further, because then it's going to mess up the 2020 year. So um, what we've got this year is going to be quite interesting because we've got this last three months of chaos in what people have been um, anticipating doing. Um, so for the next, I would say for the next, what have we got, next six weeks until the end of the year comes, um, you'd be looking at making sure you've got all your substantiation diaries all in place, um, you've got all your receipts in place. And I think that because most of us, if we're still working, which means they can, we can claim a deduction for earning income, um, we'd probably be looking at a lot of work-related home expenses, I think, Tom. That would be where it would be um, because everyone is now consuming power, heating, electricity, gas, etc., um, at home instead of in the office. So I think people might have a little bit of a sh bill shock when they realise, especially down south here in, Mel in Melbourne where it's got snap cold all of a sudden, that um, maybe their gas and electricity bill may be going through the roof. So they might be able to recoup some of that through, um, through working from home expenses during their tax return. So it'll be interesting to see what happens if people really want to get their tax returns done early. Um, for the year in July, or will they just procrastinate and leave it till May, like sometimes they do? So there'll be two schools of thought, I think. Yeah, I think we'll see. Uh, we'll see some of that. I'm certainly someone who's tended to, do, um, given that I run my own show, uh, a file early in the following year. Um, now we got a query by Twitter looking at not-for-profits and taxation. We probably don't have time to deal with everything in its complexity, but the question was why not-for-profits don't pay tax effectively. When do they become 
at least they don't pay tax. Uh, and there are several considerations here, aren't there? Oh, absolutely, Tom. And I think it's um, it's something that we've talked about, I know. Um, it's not-for-profit label uh, that we come across. I mean, I always think of their for-purpose entities. I know there's a bit of a, a school of thought saying we should start reclassifying them as for-purpose entities because that's what they are. Um, but the not-for-profit sector is so vast in doing many things. So you could look at a, a not-for-profit sector as the local school canteen maybe or the local pony club, or you could call the not-for-profit sector um, one of the AFL teams or one of the churches um, or what else have we got? A medical research institute or a, a bona fide charity that's, you know, doing doing good things with underprivileged children or the fires or whatever. Because, and it's so broad. And so it's a bit flippant, if we can say that, to say that not-for-profits don't pay any tax because some of them do and some of them don't. It's just based on the degree of sophistication that that they're doing or how they're regulated is probably more important. So if you're a bona fide for-purpose charity and you're a company limited by guarantee, not shares, and you're regulated by the ACNC, so that's the Charity Commission, um, and anyone who donates money to you gets a deduction off their tax return because they're a deductible gift recipient, well, they're probably not paying tax. But they're ones that have gone through all the hoops, the roundabouts, and been endorsed by a government body. But And then you've got the other end of the spectrum, like your local PNC, your school PNC. Well, they're not paying tax either, but because they're an unincorporated association um, and they're doing for-purpose things for, you know, the community and for the school. Uh, and then maybe somewhere in the middle, Maybe we use someone, something like the RACV or the NRMA um, and for the income that they're generating or the taxable income that they're generating that everyone can have access to, you know, like the various beverages or um, uh, things like that, uh, you know, where they're providing hospitality and, and hotel services and things like that, like accommodation, um, they're paying tax on that side of things. However, for their roadside assistance, which is what I've got in case I break down or I need someone to, you know, change my battery or my tyres, um, you know, for that, they're not paying any tax on that because we're members. So we're basically, you can't pay tax on yourself is the way the rule works. So it's really quite complex. And I'm sorry if I've sort of gone roundabout for you, but it just, it sort of depends on what type of structure the the, the um, not-for-profits in, and what sort of purpose they're for. Yeah, I think it, it, what you were referring to there, we, we both know is the mutuality mm. principle, which is you can't make – members are a part of the entity. Correct. And because members are a part of the entity, you're not making taxable income from them. Therefore, yeah, associations um, will also, uh, across the board, uh, are in that position. Hmm. One of the challenges, and we, we can come back to other issues and not for profits in, other, in another podcast at some stage, but one of the challenges for the average person must be, without doubt, 
is how to read the play when you're donating to an organisation and whether you can actually claim the amount that's been donated um, in, in your return each year because there are, there are some that are deductible gift recipients mm -hmm. and there are some that are not. What's, your, what's been your experience in talking to your clients? Yeah, exactly, Tom. So um, as of last year, or the year that we've just done, the 2019 year, the ATO are now receiving what we call granular data. So prior to that, we've got a label on an individual tax return that says donations, and you put your 100 bucks in there basically, right? And no questions asked. And unless you're going to get audited by the ATO. Now what's happening is underneath that, in terms of a work paper on anyone's tax return software that they use, we then go RSPCA, we then go World Vision. We now have to list all those and that data goes to the ATO. Because don't forget, the ATO now are really into big data. They do a lot of data matching. A lot of the irritating letters you may get from the ATO or the listeners may get from the ATO, a lot of them are auto-generated. You know, the debt for $2, like no one's actually got line aside over that. It's just a letter that's spat out and been sent to your, your address, right? So what happens now is that we need to list those. And not all the people, or, or not all the organisations that you donate to are actually deductible gift recipients. Now, you and I know what do we do when we, we check it. We basically go into the ABN, the Australian Business Number Lookup, and uh, basically type the, the charity in there and it tells you if they're a DGR, deductible gift recipient. Um, but I get a few, um, a few of my clients that come through and like something like Movember, a lot of my clients actually donate to Movember. Movember's not included on that list. So we have we have to basically inform the client that, well, we can't take a deduction for that. Okay. And I think the biggest thing that comes about, um, well, the thing that it determines whether it's a deductible gift recipient is whether they've gone through all the checks and balances with the ACNC. But I think what's come about, especially with the bushfires, we look at the first crisis of 2020, not the second one, and hopefully the second one is the last one. But you'd look at something like, and I mean, you know. No, no, this, the second one was floods. <laughs> oh, okay. So this is the third one, is it? So floods and now we're at COVID. Okay, Tom. Um, but yes, um, so look at the original one that happened over Christmas, which is the fires. Um, and I know you and I have talked about this as well with Celeste Barber and her big donations that she received. And she listed the charity being the, what was it, New South Wales Fire Service? Is that correct, Tom? Is that the correct title of them? Uh, well, the, the, well, with New South Wales um, Pire Service, I think that I think that's correct. But I yeah. think the listeners will understand what we mean. Yeah, exactly. So, um, and so what happens is if you donate to, and this is to understand how charities work, which I think the essence of the question really is, is that so Celeste starts up her her page and. And, and everyone donates, and people donate on the premise that it's going to the New South Wales Fire Service. Now, the New South Wales Fire Service is, is a charity, and they've got a constitution, and in that constitution it says what, what whoever donates has to be used for the, a specific purpose. And this is where I come down to calling them not charities or not-for-profits, but for-purpose entities. So what is the purpose of the New South Wales Fire Department? So 
although Celeste had the best intentions of saying we want to give it to to the people that have impacted by the fires, well, that isn't really the purpose or the objects of what the New South Wales Fire Service is. So that's what's happening with all the court cases and all the discussions now because New South Wales Fire Service, even though they may like to give it to the people affected by the fires, they're not permitted based on their constitution. And that's where people have to understand where, if they're donating, where the money's going and what can that money be used for. Because as soon as you donate the money, it's out of your control. It's in the it's in the entity that you've donated to and then they control it based on their board and what their constitution says. It's one of the um, quirks of what we saw unfold with the bushfires I'm sure that people are going to be more careful next time they structure a campaign because the last thing people want is to try and do the right thing, um, structure a campaign that says things will go to Location X or to Organisation X and then discover that the purpose for which they were raising the money is really not able to be um, delivered on because... There are organisational and constitutional constraints on the body that they were you know, looking to work with. Absolutely, Tom, and that's where I think people need to be more aware of what they're doing. And I think if this is one of the take-home – there's two take-home messages I'm finding at the moment with, with the, the situation – 2020 is in is that people are more aware of what's going on in terms of the dollars and also they're more aware of their own financial situation because with the with the dichotomy of am I on job keeper or job seeker um, people are really having to understand um, their own financial situation a lot better as well so if the result of 2020 is people are becoming more or the general public are becoming more financially literate, that can only be a good thing because I think some people are quite naive when it comes to those sort of things. Or maybe we just don't teach it well enough in schools. I know you and I have talked about, you know, not teaching civics as much and knowing how governments are structured and things like that as well. So um, I think anything where we can we can increase the knowledge of us Australians will be a good good thing. It's a very basic thing that we could do with, and that is some education on provisions of the Constitution and how every time every time a government does something people don't like, all of a sudden you see a plethora of tweets and retweets that say, why doesn't the government gen- Governor-General just sack the Prime Minister? It doesn't quite work that way, ladies and gentlemen. Oh yes, I'm still I'm I'm old enough to have have the impact of uh, November of the eleventh, nineteen seventy five, in in under my uh, I can still remember. It's probably one of the apart from the maybe the moon landing, which I was quite a lot younger re- with. But um, yeah, the dismissal. I was just at that age. I was I was ten, and um, it sort of did did have an impact on me. Going, hey, what's going on here? So um, yes, I think it's really important. And even what we're in now, Tom. I know I know we're going a little bit off topic, but um, you know who's in charge of health? Who's in charge of education? Is that state or federal? And and you know, even the fires, you know, who, who's in charge of the of the various um, fire services. So it's good that people understand how it all works because really the bottom line is if you vote for a politician, you get a politician. Yes. 
and you don't actually vote for the people who do the work at a state level in um, in health or the fiery uh, side of life or you know, other emergency type services. I mean, that, that's all state level driven. Um, and the confusion between federal and state during a time of a pandemic, whether it's bushfires, floods, um, or the pandemic itself, uh, adds to the tension, and we could do better with education across the board. Yeah, and I think, and, and I, I think that's always something that I've always admired about the US that they do have a big civics component in their um, high school system, so they do understand um, how the country's governed, and I think that's something that we should do more. So I think understanding how we're governed and financial literacy would be a good thing once everyone gets back to face-to-face classrooms as of next month. Which is something that I know some parents will be looking forward to if my sample of uh, people I follow on Twitter is any indication. And that's a good good, uh, good way to wind up the podcast for this week, Lisa, on tax and other matters. Thank you for joining me. My pleasure, Tom. Great to be with you again and looking forward to uh, seeing what our topic will be next week. And thank you to the people who've listened to us, uh, the first one and the second one. And I hope you all uh, stay safe and look after each other. And Lisa and I will be back with you next week looking at tax and other topics. Take care. Thanks.